You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome in to another edition of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers. As always, my name's Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and the Westside Community News. And today we're back on our trend of not talking about the Pacers at all. We're going to dive back into draft prospects. Pacers have their highest pick in three decades. Could be some movement in this draft, given how it's tiered off, given how the Pacers' needs might be. So I'm trying to cover a lot of lottery guys. And today we're doing just that with Jalen Dern from Memphis, the center, and joining me to help break down a prospect that I thought is weirdly polarizing. I've seen people rank him behind Mark Williams and things like that. That surprised me after watching his tape. Derek Murray is NBA scout and advisor for NXT Pro Hoops, Babcock Hoops, and basketball news all over the place. This man is traveling, I think, to every state in the United States at some point in the last 30 days. Derek, how you doing, man? Tony, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, yeah, travels. Man, I feel like I'm never home. Uh, it's kind of nice with the draft wrapping up here in about a month. I won't have to hear it from my wife anymore. But for the time being, uh, it's fun, and I appreciate you having me and jumping on to talk about Dern a little bit. Yeah, Dern is very interesting when you watch Memphis because the thing that stands out the most to me before we get into any skill is, you know, I knew he was 6'11", air quotes there, because I don't think he's actually 6'11", but tall and 250 pounds. That's all I knew before watching tape. He does not move like a 250-pound person, and a lot of the basis of why I think he'll be a pretty good player and a lot of the stuff we'll talk about for his strengths here is that he is really mobile for his size, and that kind of allows him to both be a bully and a speedster. I think that kind of cooks into a lot of what makes him a good prospect, but give me the pitch, the sales pitch, the high-level overview of what makes Duran a lottery guy in this year's draft. Yeah, Duran is like one of the ultimate guys. You get right up next to him in person, and you just buy in immediately based on, honestly, the eye candy of a six foot 10 250-pound physical specimen who moves really, really well and has a seven-foot-five wingspan. Probably one of the guys in this draft, as far as a pure physical profile, stands at the top. If you were just ranking players by that, arguably could actually be you know the, the guy in this class. So physical specimen, extremely explosive. He's going to be a good play finisher in the NBA. He's a lob threat, runs the floor really, really well, You know, mobile for his size and weight. Um, impacts the game with his weight, his athleticism, the agility at 250, uses his shoulders well, powerful lower body. Everything, um, even kind of the upside and the floor, are all attached to the physical traits. So that's kind of, yeah, that's that's the buy-in there for Duran. I think his range is anywhere from 8 to 14, 15. That's probably where I'd set um, the range there for him kind of going into the draft. Yeah, when I look, we'll start on the offensive side of the ball. And like a lot of, we, you know, you covered the high level stuff. The physical profile is insane. The agility is insane. And that kind of allows him to not, you know, but despite being 6'10, 250, I would like to give Penny Hardaway in Memphis a lot of credit. You know, a lot of teams when they have giant dudes in college basketball, they're like, all right, 10 feet and in. <laughs> don't come out of that. Don't come out of that circle. Uh, Memphis did not do that. Duran was everywhere on the offensive side. He would catch behind the three point line, they allowed him to dribble, they allowed him to operate. And so not necessarily, I'm not going to necessarily say like he's the best on-ball creator of all time or anything like that, but definitely a solid, especially for that size guy with the ball and pretty good in space uh, on the defensive end. So because he's mobile and they trusted him away from the rim, that kind of allowed him to show off a lot of skills. And so the first thing I thought was kind of interesting from him 
as an offensive player is he's really varied in his attacks, right? Sometimes he will drive all the way to the basket. Sometimes he'll pull up for a jumper, which he's not afraid of. That's good and bad. And he can go over both shoulders. He doesn't shoot a lot of threes, but he would shoot from basically anywhere, even though he has stronger areas than others. And I thought that kind of varied approach was really interesting for a guy that, you know, has such dominant physical tools. He wasn't just so reliant on using them to score all the time. Yeah. So forgive me. I was looking at my other screen here. I was pulling up his synergy, you know, 25% of his possessions were on post-ups, 19 and a half were on cuts, 18 on offensive rebounds, 13 in, in the transition and 11% as a pick and roll roll guy. So yeah, he's not a traditional big in that sense. You don't just post him up over and over. You don't just put him on the elbow over and over. He's comfortable in DHOs, can hand the ball off, um, really good spurts. Like he, He's uh, got good feel as far as knowing when to attack the rim when he's off the ball. My one issue with him offensively is that he took one three-pointer the whole season. And as we've seen in today's NBA, I think you do need to be able to stretch the floor a little bit to really unlock a ceiling as a big man there. But again, his ability to not just be purely one-dimensional, he's not only scoring within you know three or four feet of the goal, um, I do think makes him intriguing, especially with how big he is right now. And sorry to jump in again, he's going to be 18.6 on draft night, which is one of, if not the youngest player in the class. I wish people described my age with decimal points. <laughs> that would make me feel a lot younger all the time. I am 27.2. I don't know what the, what the numbers are, but I have, you know, I like that way of doing it for prospects. It is important to know that he is super young, which is a big part of this. And I agree that the the no three thing is concerning. What, where was it? Like a right wing three. I have this shot chart right in front of me. Yeah. yeah. He, he bricked a right wing three, ruined everything. It could have been zero for zero. He does take long twos, but not threes, you know, so I'll be curious how that translates. And we'll talk about that later as an NBA skill, because he did pretty, not pretty often, maybe once or twice a game, I would say, like he would set up a man with a three dribble move and then just shoot from like 18 feet, you know, and I was, I was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, you can right. just destroy this dude, but you pulled up. So maybe it'll translate, I would say. About a shot. I don't think he'll ever be a three-point shooter. Like nothing about his free throw percentage or the way he plays makes me think he'll be a guy that stretches. But I don't think he'll be like a zero spacer, if that makes any sense, just because of that long two. Yeah, and and with the long twos, again, what that tells me is he's comfortable taking them. You know, yeah. whether it's a big taking long twos, whether it's taking threes, I would rather you go zero for twenty in a season than go zero for zero. Um, I just need to know that you're comfortable at least attempting them and taking them. And that's where the long twos, even though a lot of teams, especially in the NBA, they're not going to let you take that shot. It was comforting to me that you wanted to. Um, Isaiah Stewart, Zeke Naji were both guys that took a lot of long twos in their offensive systems that didn't want them to do so. Um, and they're both projecting as decent shooters right now at the next level too. The next Dern skill that is eye-popping. Offensive rebounds. My gosh, this dude is a vacuum suck around the basket. If his team missed, he's getting it. And this kind of plays into another skill that he has that's not so niche and specific. He has really good hands. Like when he's rolling to the basket or moving around for catches, a lot of bigs have bad hands. He has great hands. He catches a lot of passes and a lot of lobs. He grabs the ball every time it comes off the rim. That's extra possessions for his team. And that's high-quality possessions when he's involved in the action because he's got such strong hands. After watching Isaiah Jackson for the Pacers this season, who has pretty good hands and is able to jump out of the gym, you see the value of strong hands for guys who can fly like that. Like it just adds another, you know, they talk about vertical spacing a lot as an NBA skill. And that's great if you can jump really high, you got to be able to catch the ball or do something with it. And Dern can certainly do that. And that makes him really fascinating to me as an extra skill that 
off of misses and off of actions where he's kind of involved as a screener, he can really grab the ball and make something happen. Yeah, he's going to take a lot of space, just like you said, on that offensive glass. Because not only does he have the good hands, he's got a seven foot five wingspan. So he's going to move you with his lower body. He's going to body you and be able to dislodge you where you are. And then he has the length and he has the hands. Like I do expect him to be an absolute monster on the glass on both ends, probably within two or three years. If not one, you know, year one, he comes in, he's going to be physically ready to go like day one. If the motor is there on both ends, that's to me one of the things we need to see and, and see if that can translate and be there all the time. If it is, you're going to have a potentially elite rebounder like right off the bat. The last thing I want to point out here before I'll defer to you for some final strengths, recoveries and blocks in general, but recoveries was really the highlight point for me on this. You know, you can look at his block numbers and go, oh yes, he's obviously good at blocks. His block percentage is, is like fake. It's like 10% or something ridiculous, but it's a way he gets him right. He, if, even if he's a step beat, which sometimes can be bad that he is a step beat in general, but he, he, he can get down to the rim or over from the weak side, wherever he happens to be and still block the shot. He did that quite often. I thought that was really impressive. So if he's a step quicker with the reads or gets a little more defensive instinct ingrained into his head and he's not recovering as much, all of a sudden he's in the right spot and getting more blocks or making more stuff. You know, that was really impressive to me that he was able to stay in plays that he was sometimes out of and still make it a positive for his team with his defensive capabilities. Yeah, among freshmen in this draft class, I believe he's behind only Chet in block percentage. Um, you're right, it, it was like 10-something, which is ridiculous. But again, it's because he moves so well. He changes speeds right. well, changes directions well. You know, Similarly to what we saw with Achua coming out of Memphis, where even though all the reads probably weren't there for Achua, um, the feel for the game just wasn't really there. He could recover because of the physical tools. I think Duran has considerably better feel at this point in his development than even Achua did. So on defense, I think he's going to be able to hedge and recover. I think he can blitz. He's got the length to be able to drop when you need him to. That's some serious versatility in uh, in the pick and roll, which I think, again, makes him super valuable, especially with the way you want bigs to move on that end of the floor today. Any strengths you would add that we have not covered yet? Um, I think he passes pretty well out of the post and on the elbow. You know, it's not like he's no looking all the time or anything like that, not throwing, you know, one-handed behind thing, but he's reliable. He sees the cutters. Um, he doesn't miss a lot of people, which I think is important, where even if that seems basic because it's a stationary pass, he does have good feel for the flow of the offense and can make reads, which I think is valuable as well. After doing Keegan Murray last week, I, you know, not that Keegan's a bad passer, but Dern's definitely more, you know, better at those reads to me at least, especially out of the post. So I, I, the baseline of Keegan is unfair for comparing guys for passing, but I agree with you that Dern definitely makes good reads from the post and – I think that ability to read the game is always a nice basis for prospects to have on both ends of the floor. I've said this way too many times doing prospect breakdowns, but like Ben Simmons comes in with like genius level defensive reads, right? And his offense wasn't that great yet, but you kind of knew it was going to get there because he can already read the game and has the pattern recognition that will come on the other end of the floor. That's going to be true for a lot of guys in the NBA level. It's one of the reasons that going into the LaMelo ball draft, I actually, although the defense for LaMelo was a huge problem, in his evaluation part of me looked at okay he clearly has elite vision and reads and control of the floor on offense so on defense if you can get him to lock in he already sees what's going on like he's already there he feels it it's how can you get him to lock in so yeah i um i sometimes try to i won't say give the benefit of the doubt but i'm hopeful when a player reads well on one end of the floor 
that you can get that to translate to the other side. Yeah, Marianne Stanley, the fever head coach here in Indianapolis, always talks about like, give me players who can see and have vision. I'll teach them the, you know, <laughs> I can teach them the rest of that. And she, she got that from another coach, I think she said, but like, I agree with that. You know, that's a good way of putting it. If you can have vision and make reads, like <laughs> that's really valuable. The, the rest of the stuff is a little easier to teach once you have that baseline down. Hey guys, let's take one short little break to talk about Bill Bar, who are making the best tasting protein bars ever. We've been asking and Bill Bar finally delivered. They have granola bars now as well. But what makes Bill Bar so great is they make the best tasting protein bars out there. 100% covered in chocolate, soft, easy to chew, delicious protein bars. They come in so many different flavors that there's something for everybody. It is definitely the most popular uh, product that we've talked about on Lockdown Pacers in terms of my listeners listen, trying it and telling me that they absolutely love it. So many great flavors, really healthy, really delicious. The texture always matches the flavor. My favorite's the peanut butter brownie. They just made a birthday cake puff one that was fantastic. You've got to try them. Most have about 150 calories, 15 grams of protein, only four grams of sugar. That's what the granola bars have as well. They come in three awesome flavors, chocolate peanut butter, chocolate coconut, and white chocolate berry. You can try all three in their mixed box right now as well. Go to Built.com to try Built Bar today. You can get whatever kind you want, a mixed box, mixed box or one for your favorite flavor. Use the promo code LOCKED15. You'll get 15% off your order. That promo code again is LOCKED15 for 15% off at Built.com. Let's flip to the weaknesses side. As with every center, some of his weaknesses are kind of limited to his position, which is sort of a bummer in the context of how the NBA is these days, but it's it's a criticism of players, and that's how it is. And you brought up the big one. I know I talked about long twos and kind of spun it in a, in a little bit of positive light, but one three-point attempt. Look, that is what that is what makes Chet like very high. Like not obviously Chet's like the best defensive prospect since Evan Mobley, which is one year ago, but you know. He's an insane defensive prospect, right? Like, you can draft him really high anyway, but the fact that he can shoot, like, he can do so much in the NBA, that makes him, as a center, really, really draftable. Durant does not shoot threes. One, the whole season, like you brought up, and it's not something I ever think he'll be confident in doing without a ton of work on the shot, which is really rare outside of, like, Brooke Lopez. How many centers have totally, totally, totally reinvented themselves to be a floor spacer? Like, it's, it's, it happens. It's just kind of rare, right? I covered Al Jefferson at the same time, at Brook Lopez went from a guy who took five threes a season to like 200, and Al Jefferson went from taking five threes a season to taking five. Like some guys, it just doesn't happen. So I think that in the modern NBA, his lack of shooting could end up being something that really hurts him. I don't see him becoming a five to 200 guy. I think he's more a five to five guy. <laughs> yeah. If I had to project right now, um, obviously, you know, the, the shooting is going to be an issue as far as what you can get out of him offensively. But I think his, even just overall, the scoring prowess, if you want to call it that, is lacking right now. It's like even though he does score well and finish, he doesn't really have a ton of post moves either. The footwork on his post moves are kind of worrisome. Um, so the lack of shooting, the lack of post moves, and elite length really does actually give him some trouble. You know, for anybody listening to this, go and watch Memphis versus Gonzaga in the NCAA tournament. He was able to move Chet at will underneath, absolutely buried Chet into the restricted area and still couldn't get a shot off because Chet's length just – he didn't have the footwork to create any space with the room that he was able to create with the physicality. So along with the shooting, just kind of the overall offensive you know, finesse skill part of the game, I've got some concerns right now. Yeah, but I was told Chet is terrible because he's skinny. So how is that possible? How is this possible? <laughs> yeah, I, I think he, that's one of my he gets, he gets pushed around, so he won't be able to do anything. It's my least favorite draft cycle take, so I always try to just make it seem belittling and dumb, even though I probably shouldn't do that. Yeah, I agree with all that. And and I talked about something earlier. I kind of mentioned it in passing, but I, I put this in my notes that he goes over both shoulders. And that's like 
kind of a good thing. You know, he thinks about the the reason to do that as a strength, but he also does it a lot because he doesn't have a more complex move to go to, right? Like he, when he catches, if he takes two dribbles, he just, all he thinks about is, it's not like a hook shot. It's more like a, I don't know what to call it. He just turns over his shoulder and puts it up and it's fine. He, he finishes well right around the basket. But once you get him outside of like five feet or something, actually per CBB analytics from four to 10 feet in the paint, basically not at the rim, 20 for 44 this season, right? Like that's under 50%. That's not what you want from a guy who's that imposing and should be in theory able to create a little bit more advantages in that area. So I agree that shot creation, even though he does have some skill off the dribble and some size, is not necessarily a strength for him. Yeah, and the lack of touch, kind of especially with that left hand, is an issue. Like, I didn't know that, you know, 20 for 44 or whatever, but again, that, that that checks out. You pull him away from the goal where he can't dunk on you, and you're able to cause some problems. So I'd say his offensive skill set, if he had to call it something right now, I would still use the word raw. But again, he's 18. He'll be 18 on draft night. Um, and with those physical tools, you're going to have a front office who says, like, we want to bet on him, and we want to develop that. So it is an issue right now. But again, like his, his work ethic, if you can get him to buy in of, hey, like we need to teach you some of the more finesse moves where I know you're used to just being able to overpower and explode and dunk on everybody. That's where you can unreally or really unlock um, kind of that offensive ceiling. I know we talked about the, you know, I'm going to compare something you said earlier to ball handling right now. But, you know, if a guy is over 20 from three, at least he's willing to take it as opposed to a guy who's zero for zero. You know, I talk about his dribbling earlier. It's like he's a guy who's willing to put the ball on the floor and make a play. That said, he also turns it over a ton after he puts it on the floor. Uh, killer turnover rate, almost 20%, almost one in five team touches. Duran's turning it over. Like that's a big weakness for him, even though I think it's a good thing in general that he does put it on the floor. Like that's good for his development that he's working on that skill and having that baseline. But the results of a lot of those plays are bad. And after, after watching Heat Celtics last night where Jalen Brown – had his dribble in a blunder for half the game and had six turnovers, seven, I can't remember. Uh, you know, that can be bad. And Jalen Brown came in as a guy with not a good dribbling baseline as a prospect, and he's gotten a lot better at it, obviously. But, you know, you, I don't want to say I'm comparing those players or anything, but being able to dribble and not turn it over does have a lot of value in every setting of the sport, playoff, regular season, title game, whatever. I think it's good that he is working on his handling and trying to create for himself to some extent, but he's got to clean it up. He's got to tighten that handle if he wants to do it at the pro level. Yeah, and that's where I, I'm curious to see who picks him because it will be telling on what they want him to do at the pro level. You know, sometimes I think we get hung up, we as in not you or anybody in particular, just collectively, sometimes we get hung up on what a player can't do. I don't think Duran's ever going to be asked to initiate any kind of offense on the floor. So, yes, he does need to tighten up the handles for sure. Um, but again, like, if he doesn't, I don't ever think that'll be a reason you draft him is to create. So I wouldn't put – I'm not going to put too much stock in that inability right now because it's probably just not going to be ever anything he gets asked to do in volume. What do you think of his pick and roll defense? Again, I think the versatility is what's really special. The fact that he can move so well, recover, actually has pretty good feel um, both when he hedges, when he has to uh, blitz, or when he, when he stays down. Um, I think just the overall feel, the speed of the game will take some adjusting. I think just because he is a young guy, um, you know, sometimes the game can move really, really quick for him, but not enough to where it was worrisome to me. So I think he's going to be a good pick and roll defender, especially with that length. I think he will be too. Uh, there were a lot of times where I thought, oh, he's, he's too high. And then I'd watch more of the game and I'd go, oh, he's too high again. And then I'd watch a little more of the game and I'd go, oh, he's too high again. At that point, I was like, wait. 
do I think he's too high or is that where he's being told to stand? You know, that 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 becomes a problem of like, I can't analyze how this is going. And he recovered fine on almost all those instances. So I agree. I think he'll be a good pick and roll defender, which is <laughs> incredibly crucial for prospects, especially at the five in these draft cycles now. So I think you know, on the defensive side, that's a plus for him. But his team defense in general, sometimes like when he's really far from the play, this is true of like every 18-year-old prospect, but yeah, just totally zones out sometimes. You know, get back cuts are sometimes a problem for him and you know, just not a little more upright, catching his breath kind of stuff. And like, yeah, everybody does that. But I still think that's a bad thing. Like you have to – in the NBA, like you – there are very few seconds where you can have that happening anymore with teams having more complex offenses and trying to cut more and create advantages anyway – you got to know where your man is at all times, and that is that is where I think his probably biggest need of growth will be at the pro level on defense. Yeah, he does take too many plays off, yes. and that's that's the one concern. That's the biggest concern that I have heard from teams is can you get him to lock in and turn on his motor on both ends every play when he's on the floor? And if you think that your organization can get that out of him, Duran is a guy that you you're you, um, I would expect to go high in the draft. The more teams that think, I don't know if I can get him to buy in, not fall asleep on defense and spurts, and be locked in and have that motor on 100% for every play, at that point, you know, I think I could see him falling a little bit. But again, to your point, like the physical tools will allow him to do well if he wants to. And that's what we've got to find out. A lot of times the motor concerns, at least in early seasons for a prospect, can come down to like one, do they like the role they have? Because if they do, they'll give it their all in that role. Or two, is their team good? <laughs> like, if he gets drafted to a team that is playoffs year one, I think he'll be more engaged and that motor concern will go away pretty quick because he'll know, like, okay, my team is winning. What I'm doing is working. I have to keep doing that. Whereas if he doesn't like his role as much or his team sucks, which is possible, he's getting drafted to a lottery team, like, it could be a little harder to stay engaged all the time. I think that's true for a lot of prospects that come in with motor concerns. So, yeah, I think situation where he gets picked, I don't know if I'd go the most, but more so than most of the guys in the top whatever range you have put him in, 14, 12, whatever, will be very, very important, as more so than a lot of these other guys. As of right now, um, Matt and I actually have him mocked at number nine to San Antonio, and that's where I think it would be perfect for him because I yeah. think they have one more year of Pirtle, and then I don't think they have any kind of big man or four of the future. They have a lot of you know big wings, ball-handling wings, combo guards. I think that they're an organization that can – get him to buy in and unlock that full potential. And if you add him to the young Spurs core, again, they already need a forward or center of the future. And that I think is like the best case scenario for him. If he doesn't go there, you know, I look at the the team list. I think Charlotte at 13 or 15 can make some sense. Um, but those that 9, 13, 15 are the ones for me where it's like, okay, like I think you can go here, be happy in your role fairly early and really lock in um, because of what they have you doing. I'd like to thank everyone for, as always, making Locked On Pacers their first listen today and every single day. You mentioned the Spurs, and I only say this as a segue because Pirtle has one year left on his deal. Well, guess who else has one year left on their deal? Uh, that would be Miles Turner. Guess who else has one year left on their contract? That would be Goga Batadze. So I don't necessarily think the Pacers will be like prioritizing center to the extent that they even care about position in the draft. Like when you're picking really high, sometimes you pick the guy you think is the best. But it's not like insane to me they would pick a center, especially because they could move one of the guys they have. That said, I'm gonna talk I want to talk more about his NBA fit and then kind of drift towards, you know, when I talk about Pacers fit with a lot of these guys, I say <laughs> Tyrese Halbert and Chris Duarte. Does he fit with those two guys? But NBA fit in general to me, where I start with every prospect when I have this discussion is okay, the game is more spaced out and it's faster. You know, do your skills allow you to keep up with that or hang in that setting in a way that 
you know, in college, you might have been able to do something. But once it gets faster and more space here, can you still do stuff? And so on offense, I don't think the speed will necessarily hurt him because he's got the physical tools to do it. And if he's just a lob guy or, you know, a good hands offensive rebound machine. Yeah, I think like Isaiah Stewart translated really fast. Not that they're comparable players, but, you know, those kind of skills help the beefs to translate really fast. But on defense where, like we mentioned earlier, he can sometimes be a step out of the play and have to recover. Like, yeah, I think he'll get better at that stuff, but I think it could take longer for him to have a strong defensive impact because when the game gets faster, those recoveries will get tougher. So I think his translation to the NBA is pretty, I would say pretty good, but there are some concerns I have on the defensive end especially. Yeah, it's the reads that are going to speed up for him right off the bat. You know, like you said, I don't think the physical aspect or athleticism aspect will be too much for him. I mean, even on day one, I think he's going to come out one of the more uh, like one of the more physical and physically ready guys on the floor in any gym, but reading the pick and rolls, I think falling asleep sometimes, maybe getting back cut um, or things even right in front of him, maybe he's going to have to adjust to that speed and the reaction and processing speed. That's gonna that's gonna take a little bit of time for sure. Do you think he can play the four at all at the pro level? I do, but it's it's if you trust him to take those mid-range and long twos and eventually stretch the floor. Otherwise, I think just a five. Yeah, the so I don't know if you know Adam Spinella very well, but he was the first person who put me on this theory of your position is what you guard. That's what you are. And so I do think it's possible he could guard fours in the NBA. And for that reason, I'll say, yeah, you know, it's possible that he could be a four. No lower on the positional hierarchy, obviously. But I think it's possible he could defend fours. And that makes it a little more palatable to me that he could be a little like have that versatility and be a, a 10 foot and out guy on offense shouldn't shoot, but you know, it won't kill you to that on that end of the floor. And that makes me a little more bullish on his NBA fit, because I think if he's able to switch a little bit and guard more guys than just the five, because you're really sticking him in one role in that case, then I think that you, they got, you got something there. You got a versatile guy who obviously can be really imposing. And if he's with fours, he can be really imposing. That's why I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like stupid high on him, but I'm pretty high on his skills in general just because he's so physically imposing and has some versatility. And I think at the NBA level, that'll be really valuable. I think by year two or three in the league, I think he go- switches three through five just fine. I don't think the I don't think the mobility is going to be an issue guarding threes. I don't want him necessarily switched on guards all the time. Again, as with 99% of bigs, that's going to be an issue. But I wouldn't even limit him to just fours. I think he's got more defensive upside almost into the threes as well. Um, I mean, just watch him run the floor again, those physical tools, yeah, you just have to work at it. He's still a kid. And, you know, if he was 20, he was 20, 20 and a half, 21 at that point, I'm like, okay, maybe he is a little bit more, you know, already what he's going to be, but at 18 and a half, um, I'm not going to put him in even that four to five box. I think we're probably looking three to five as far as switchability, um, on the floor. How many big men that run like a gazelle in the last five years have been like not good <laughs> in the NBA? Like it's really rare, right, for those bigs who have that mobility to really like not find a niche, at least in the NBA. Maybe they don't live up, they don't all live up to their draft positions, but they all find a role that they can play and succeed in at the pro level. And Duran's got that. He is, he is quick. He's beating some guards up the floor sometimes when he's running. And Penny Hardaway didn't run like all NBA stuff, but they ran some NBA stuff. Like they made him move and, and, be that level of player, which I think is fascinating for him in the NBA. Let's talk about the Pacers specifically to the extent that we even can because NBA teams change so fast these days. But I think Halliburton specifically, the new Pacers alpha, guy's going to have the ball all the time, pretty good offensive match, um, very good offensive match really, as a guy who can throw strong passes to a guy with good hands who has some 
ability to overpower guys in the post. I like that. Dern's a good screener, especially because of his physical profile. I like that offensive fit quite a bit. And again, in transition, that gazelle-like mobility will be very helpful next to a guy who is brilliant in transition and can see the whole floor. The defensive end, I am lower on Halburn's defense than most these days, and I'd be a little concerned about that. I think they would need to find a way to shrink the floor if that was their focus on the defensive end. They'd have to kind of gimmick things up a little bit with the rest of their guys. That's possible. They have some versatile defenders in Duarte and Jackson. But you know, I think if he if he does come to the Pacers, if Dern does, first of all, that will tip that they're about to trade like two or three players. But second of all, I think that you know it would take a little bit of time for the Pacers to figure out how to maximize him with their team. And I don't even think they'd pick him at six. They'd have to move back a little bit for me to think they would do that. Maybe they would. But I would think that fit is interesting, but it would take a little longer for it to kind of materialize. Yeah, I wouldn't pick him at six. I don't see any world where no, I wouldn't that really does happen. Now, trading out of – again, if I'm the Pacers, I'm not moving the pick. Like, I'm, I'm taking either, you know, Sharp or Murray, probably if one of them are there. But there's going to be teams who want Sharp, want Murray, and want Dyson Daniels. And if somebody really wants to get him – at that point, six is an interesting to pick or interesting pick to shop at that point. So I don't think trading back is totally out of the picture if someone wants one of those other guys like really, really badly. What's interesting looking at the Pacers roster, you know, like you said, Turner had one has one more year. You said Goga has one more year as well. Um, I really I would be excited at the proposition of having Isaiah Jackson at my four and Jalen Duran at my five. <laughs> Defense like you, everywhere. You've got some serious speed. length, athleticism, and yeah. speed there. And neither of them have to carry a big offensive load because of the guards you have. I mean, just lobs for days. <laughs> Shot, shots getting swatted left and right. I, again, I, I don't know how that looks to let Turner and Goga go at the end of this year, trade them, whatever. But the, the theory of those two together is actually really exciting. Yeah, you can say what you want about their positions overlapping, whatever. I think Toronto proved this year, like, you can easily get away with it. As long as they can do enough on one end, you can easily get away with it. It does not take that much creativity for long, rangy, speedy four fives to play together. The Raptors did it like 40 minutes a game. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think a lot of, you know, just to close this out with a trade discussion, because that's what everybody wants to hear about, apparently. I don't, but whatever. You know, Murray, I think, is kind of the swing point here. If the Pacers view Murray as like, yes, this is the sixth best player or fifth or whatever, you know, Murray Sharp. If they view him in that tier of the top six for sure, then they probably pick. But if they say, okay, we kind of have Murray in this tier with Matherin and A.J. Griffin and whoever else, Dyson Daniels are in that six through ten range, then they'd be more susceptible to moving back. So that is kind of the key point for them in making the decision of where they end up picking, to me, assuming things go as everybody has surmised so far. So yeah, Keegan Murray, I already did his episode, but ironically, the evaluation of him and where he goes or where him and Shaden go, that the five, six most commonly mocked, could dictate a lot about the Pacers' plans in this draft. Yeah, especially if you can get another asset or a future first. Like if somebody wants to go up there and give you maybe an unprotected number, an unprotected first for next year, plus their first now, I mean, next year's draft is pretty loaded. So you have to kind of entertain how much do we value Murray or Sharp versus two first. If I'm the Pacers, I mean, it would take a ton for me to move because I'll take either one of those guys at six. I think six is a real sweet spot because one of them is going to fall to you. Seven is kind of a worrisome spot in this year's draft because the guys that I'm really high on have a chance to go one through six and be gone. But I think the Patriots spot, I wouldn't move unless you just get kind of like the Godfather offer where you look in your round and you go, hey, guys, like we, we kind of have to take this. 
We will see what they do. They have not been in a position like this for, again, three decades. Last time they picked less than 10 was 1989. Most people still are just like, how is that possible? Derek, thank you very much for the time today. Much appreciated as we wade through these prospects here on Locked On Pacers. I mentioned it at the beginning, but where can people follow you and all your work covering every draft, every player, some I've never even heard of this year and every year? Yeah, my Twitter is just my name, D. Murray Hoops. Um, you can find it there on my account. You can find basketball news. Uh, my boss, Matt Babcock, his stuff as well. Uh, we're going to be up at the draft uh, in New York uh, later next month. We've got some pre-draft workouts coming out, some more player reviews, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we're cranking out everything we can. With We're under 30 days to go. And, again, Tony, thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciated it. That's the first time I've heard someone say we're under 30 days. I Today, someone said the lottery was nine days ago. It feels like two lifetimes ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, the time just gets so muddled for me between the lottery and the draft. Derek, thank you very much for the time. Everybody, this show is at Locked on Pacers on Twitter. If you want to yell at me for saying something dumb, at T East NBA is the way to go for that. Have a great weekend. If you're in Indy, enjoy the 500. If you're able to have a three-day weekend because of Memorial Day, enjoy your time off. And we will see you on Monday.